Usually in the West, we end up thinking of, of Christ as a victim. He goes to the cross to suffer and bear the punishment for our sins, and so God pours out divine wrath on him, and he bears it and endures it and gives up his life for us. From an Orthodox perspective, certainly sin has to be dealt with. But when the satisfaction is given, the satisfaction from Orthodoxy's perspective is not to God's justice, but to God's truth. This is the Heath in Pursuit podcast with Heath Hollinsby. Each week we'll have a conversation with various folks who are actively engaged in the pursuit of truth. This is a show where anything can be discussed and probably will. A podcast for the seekers, the dreamers, the restless, the hurt and the broken. This is a podcast for you. Welcome to Heath in Pursuit. Well, hello. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Heath in Pursuit. I'm Heath Hollinsby, and I host this weekly podcast. Uh, and the premise is I just need to figure out what I need to learn about life because there's so much I thought I knew that I don't, so much I don't know, so much I misunderstood, so much I was ignorant about. And I don't want to be like that. I want to be informed and intellectually honest and have discussions with people I disagree with or don't understand where they're coming from and try to figure out what is true and what is good and what is beautiful, not for just myself, but for humanity and for the world. And um, so that's kind of why we're doing this show. I know there's a lot of shows out there and uh, what's the point of another one? But I just thought, I don't know. I just kind of felt like this is something that needed to be done. Maybe just for myself, even. But hopefully uh, you guys are getting something out of it. And this week, uh, we're talking with Jim Payton, who has a book out called The Victory of the Cross, with a subtitle, Salvation in Eastern Orthodoxy. And Jim is um, a Canadian, which I love, because they're always the friendliest to me. And he is just really well-versed in uh, Eastern Orthodoxy and prov- and provides a very helpful way in which they view scripture and the world, um, starting back in creation and taking us all the way not only to the cross, but what's good for the world today. And so I wanted to have him on and kind of dive into uh, salvation and creation. And and so um, that's why we're doing this episode. So Jim, thank you for being with us today. It's a great privilege. Thank you very much for inviting me, Heath. One of the things that I really greatly appreciated about your book is the level at which you're able to compare and contrast the way that the Eastern and Western mindsets approach the Christian faith. And uh, in fact, Alan Watts, who's like an old English philosopher, has done a great deal for me in revealing that what I claim to know and hold dear is often informed by just a really limited knowledge from a framework that I consider to be trustworthy simply because it's familiar. And so to get outside of myself and to see that there's a whole other world of thinking out there, and in fact, maybe even many other worlds, it's quite humbling, but it's been hard trying to see these narratives outside of what I'm often surrounded by. Um, And I think before we get into some of the questions of the cross specifically, it would be helpful to look at the way that Eastern Orthodoxy tends to approach the concept of approaching the scriptures and how it's different from maybe the academic scholarly way that we often approach it in a Western mindset. Do you mind talking about that a little bit? As Orthodox, Eastern Orthodoxy approaches the scriptures, they do so very consciously from the perspective of Christ's death and resurrection, building on what Christ said, the risen Christ said to the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, and that's in Luke 24. And then later in uh, in that same chapter, what he said to the gathered ones in the upper room, uh, orthodoxy takes very seriously that all of scripture, the, the, the writings, the prophets, the Psalms, 
uh, and the Torah uh, focus on Jesus Christ. And so from their perspective, mm-hmm. the way you start reading scripture is with the, the work of Christ, is his cross and his resurrection. And so then you, you read things expecting to learn about him from them. So in that regard, it, it, the, the orthodox approach is different than what's become kind of a scholarly convention in the last couple of centuries in Western Christianity, where the primary interest of scholarship is to find out what was in the mind of the human writer or the person who redacted or edited the, the materials. Uh, and, and so the, the ma- major concern has been to understand what the, the biblical author or editor was, was attempting to con- convey. And that's important to orthodoxy, but ultimately they, they say if, if that's all you have, you've missed the point because Scripture is inspired by God, and God so directed all of the history of redemption to focus on and be fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. So if we don't see Christ, if we don't see him and, uh, and the work of redemption and salvation in him, uh, we're going to end up misunderstanding and consequently misinterpreting the passages. So it, it's a, a rich but a challenging way of looking at the scriptures. You know, one of the things I love that you reference is that there's a proper way to read Scripture, and it's not just the Bible, but it includes the apostolic message and the tradition passed on and defended by the Church. And a lot of what I see in at least American Christianity or American evangelicalism is uh, a highly individualistic approach to the text. It's, this is what it means to me, this is my personal uh interpretation, this is my personal, whatever it might be. But but the Christian faith is a, it's a faith that has to accept oral tradition as part of it, and and I love that you said, like, the traditions that are passed on and defended by the Church, so that just a one-on-one, you sitting down and reading the Bible by yourself, you're actually not doing a fair justice to reading the Bible in the way that it was intended to be read. I, yeah, I would say that, and as in so many other things, you know. Again, I'm a historian, but you you have to under you have to try to understand things in the context in which they were written, uh, to whom they were being written, uh, what was the situation they were dealing with and facing, but then also to understand your own context, which is going to shape uh, shape the way in which you read scripture and realize that you're limited. So, in yeah, in North American society with our individualism. Uh, that's so rampant in so many ways, it's the natural kind of default perspective is to assume that's the way Scripture should be read. When Scripture indicates that's not the way it should be read. It should be read as the story of God's redemption of his people, of fulfilling his promise to our first parents, uh, and fulfilling it in Jesus Christ, Uh, and then handing on that message through the apostles to the early church um, that passed it on by word of mouth, by preaching and by teaching for decades before anything began to be written that became the New Testament. The older I get, um, and the more that I learn to do digging around and being okay with asking questions, um, I'm often confronted with just how steeped in a Western view of salvation I live in. And I know that uh, you've you've mentioned that like orthodoxy asks different questions at times than Western Christianity does. In fact, you state that orthodoxy even takes sometimes a different starting point than Western Christianity does, specifically regarding the way they view creation and kind of garden scene. And if we start on different trajectories, the end result is going to be obviously quite different. And so I think it might be helpful to start way back in creation and in the garden. And I'm wondering, um, in your opinion, what us kind of Western thinkers, who are most listeners of the show, could learn about creation 
and maybe the need for salvation from our Eastern brothers and sisters. Okay, yeah, that's that's a good place good place to go. From from Northhawk's perspective, the way they approach the scriptures, of course, Adam and Eve were formed and created. They they were made in the image and after the likeness of God. Where where we in the West will often take image and likeness as kind of parallel for most of the early church fathers, certainly the Greek speaking world, that one that ended up shaping and influencing Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy, that is. Um, there, many of these early church leaders called church fathers made a distinction between the image and the likeness. And the image is something we're made with. Uh, we were made, as the King James says, in, in his image after his likeness. Well, in his image is the gift, but after his likeness is a goal, according to the early church fathers. That is, uh, Adam and Eve and their descendants were to grow in faithfulness toward God, to live for, with him, to love him, to serve him, and to walk in ways increasingly to become like him through their conscious decisions and choice and by his mercy and grace, and eventually to receive eternal life as the, the life that only God has in himself. That distinction is important because it's it's very interesting in two regards in, in Genesis 2 and 3 as we think about the early, early uh, chapters of Scripture. In Genesis 2, when Adam and Eve were told they could eat freely of all the trees of the, of the, of the garden except the one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were warned, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. And, and so we need to keep that word in mind, die. He didn't say you will become guilty, though they did. He, would, he didn't say, in the day that you eat of it, you will break my law, though they did. He said, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. Now, we come back to that in just a minute, but it's interesting the way in which the serpent framed the particular temptation to Eve and then to Adam. He asked this question uh, to, to Eve about, uh, did God really say you can't eat of any of these trees? And then the way he tempered was that to say that God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God. Huh. He's given them a shortcut to this likeness to God so they can rely on this fruit, whatever it was, rather than walking the arduous way and longstanding way of obedience and faithfulness. And we know what ended up happening. They didn't become like God. They fell into sin. Now, mm. with that, uh, there's a way of understanding how it could be that Adam and Eve could be so readily tempted. They were like young people looking for a shortcut. Sure. And what ended up happening when, when God speaks to them, he curses the serpent, he curses the ground, but he doesn't curse Adam and Eve. Instead, he offers them hope and a promise that he would send a deliverer. But interestingly, what ends up happening is that they turn away from God, who is life, and on that path is death. So in the day that you eat of it, you will die, comes true because God's word is true. God alone, mm -hmm. according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6, God alone has life in himself. And so when Adam and Eve turned away from fellowship with God, the only thing they could turn toward is the death, uh, which would be theirs by nature. And the early church, uh, the early church fathers taught that since Adam and Eve had been made from nothing, except for God's mercy and grace, they would go back to nothing. That is, they would end up dying. Um, so basically, what ends up being the kind of the perspective that Ortho Eastern Orthodoxy carries forward is that Adam and Eve were offered hope. Uh, by, by God who's so desperately disappointed with them and they'd failed him. And yes, they disobeyed. Yes, they'd become guilty. But in the early church, the primary way of understanding and the, the, the problems for Adam and Eve was not guilt, but they're turning away from God who is life. And so they're on the path of death. And we and all their descendants with them are 
Yeah. Wrapped up in death. You just blew my mind because I have never, first of all, separated the the image of God and the likeness of God, uh, and seeing those as, as you know different things, but also the shortcut. It is so fitting because I, I know my own heart and I know that I'm prone to shortcut to be more like God. And I love that, you know, Eugene Peterson talks about a long obedience in the same direction. And that is the path to godliness. Um, and when you shortcut, you get in trouble. And one of the things that you mentioned was that scripture for early church fathers was more like a story and not an encyclopedia. And uh, you said that a few different times throughout the book was talking about how you know, in our day, Christians look at the Bible as some sort of encyclopedia that we're supposed to get almost moral lessons learned from. And when you cut the story out of it, you lose a lot of the beauty and fullness that I think was intended in the original writings, correct? Yes, yeah. I do emphasize that because in, in orthodoxy, I mean, what, what they end up saying is that Scripture is all about God fulfilling his promises in Jesus Christ and bringing them to bear. So everything else is support for that. But, you know, it's it's not an encyclopedia. You know, you can flip it anywhere in an encyclopedia and find out data about whatever it is that you're looking up. Well, that's that's not the way Scripture is to be used. Yes, God is a God of truth. But in the Orthodox perspective, God's truth is that he keeps his promise. God's truth is that he judges sin. God's truth is that, you know, it, it, these things related to the history of redemption. But he's yeah. it, it's not something where he's trying to answer the questions that we might like to to raise about X or Y or Z, Z issues at all. As I'm learning here to reframe my mind, I'm thinking about how difficult it might actually be to practice using Jesus as the plumb line throughout the Old Testament, too, because it's so foreign to what I've been raised at. You know, in American evangelicalism, it's the story, you cut off the Imago Dei. I was talking with uh, Amanda Bunkhausen last week on the Gospel According to Eve, and when you, when you cut off the Imago Dei in Genesis 1... And you cut off the story of everything being restored in Revelation, you really end up with the story being God had a really great earth, we screwed it up, and Jesus had to be sent and to fix everything that we screwed up. But when you actually have the Imago Dei involved and you have uh, the story, I think it really does paint a different picture. And if you're able to go through even the entire Old Testament with Jesus as the plumb line, which sounds like a daunting task and difficult intellectually for me to even consider... Um, are you able to find Jesus throughout the old, the whole Old Testament? Well, that, that's that's the Orthodox claim, and and in in some regards, even in in Western Christianity, that's been uh, the emphasis when for the people who've talked about the history of redemption or salvation history, recognizing that God is at work in all of this. Yeah. But it, it it can be challenging. Uh, some passages are easier. Isaiah, for example, is has sometimes been called the fifth gospel. Then you get to the book of Proverbs, and it sure sounds like moralism, but it's 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 not that. Yeah. But seeing how Christ is the fulfillment of that uh, is harder than seeing in, for example, in Psalm 22 or Psalm 23 or so many of the other passages. So sure. it can be a daunting task and, and uh, a challenging one. But the church fathers and throughout centuries, uh, that's the way people for a long, long time ended up approaching the Old Testament, um, as we call it in, in speaking of how Scripture holds together. Um, this might be kind of along this, the same topic, but when you talk about the economy of salvation, I thought it was really helpful in the way that it confronts this, everything is perfect, and then we come along and screw it all up, and then God has to fix what we broke, and if you don't accept his fix, and eternity looks really awful for you. Mm -hmm. uh, that Western approach that I've been indoctrinated in since I was a child. And in the economy of salvation, you're really focusing on God's depth of love for his image bearers that's the primary engine for saving the world 
and that this is not just for individuals, but it's for the whole of salvation. And so uh, with your knowledge of Eastern Orthodoxy, what would you encourage Westerners to consider and how to think or even to rethink about the concept of salvation? An easy place to start is with probably what is the most famous verse in all of Scripture, the one that gets held up at, on posters at football games or whatever else you can see, John 3.16 posted. But then so often, as you were saying just a little bit ago, we end up hearing or reading in terms of the way we've, we've been shaped and framed. So we don't necessarily hear what it straightforwardly says. And in John 3.16, however we translate it, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not die, but have everlasting life. Hmm. Now, notice none of that says speaks of God's wrath, though clearly that's taught about in Scripture as well. Sure. And his love toward us is not that we might not be found guilty, but that we might not die, but should have, what, forgiveness, justification? No, should have eternal, eternal life. life. Um John 3.16 is taking us back to Genesis 3, uh, Genesis 2 and 3, and, and talking about the way we were shaped and formed. I'm not sure that I can lay out here at this point, you know, why, why it's been so common in, in the West for us to think of God so often as, as wrathful. But there were, in, there were influences in the Middle Ages, for example, where, uh, that, that shaped the way we ended up thinking in the West and Western Europe and North America. But if I step away from that for a minute, let me just point out, this. Um, in the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, uh, a liturgy that, well, is credited to him, he died in the year 407. This liturgy is used in every Orthodox church, everywhere in the world, in whatever language they use, 40 times a year. Hmm. And in that liturgy, it says 12 times, God is the lover of humanity. In the liturgy of St. Basil the Great, uh, a little bit longer. Basel died a few uh, a few decades earlier, in 359 to 360 AD. Yeah. The same phrase, God is the lover of humanity, or God loves humankind, is said 15 times. Now, that, that liturgy is used several other times during the church year. The point is that it's drummed into the hearts and minds of Orthodox people in their regular weekly worship. God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. God loves humankind. But it's not just God loves me or God loves the church, but God loves humanity and God loves his creation. And so it's the emphasis is put indeed on the love of God that sent his that promised the, the, to Adam and Eve already uh, a deliverer and the love of God that sent his son to die. And so that from an Orthodox perspective, what you have happening in the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Christ is not a manifestation of God's wrath that has to be taken care of as God's love that takes care of us. And so it's a very different approach. It's even far-reaching beyond just the physical human beings, but it, I mean, this is actually also a call to to creation and to animals and creation care. You know, his love for the world is not just for the human soul, but it's for the flourishing of everything that he did create. That's right. In, in I mean, the Orthodox make a, a strong case for how the, the sin that Adam and Eve introduced into the world has vitiated, has, has weakened, uh, weakened the way in which we relate to the world and indeed corrupted it. 
so that you know we we take advantage of the world rather than than stewardly using it we we can abuse yeah. it in in a variety of ways and and all the things we hear about with climate care and that sort of thing uh is old news uh in the orthodox world that in in our sin we we end up defiling and and, and bankrupting god's creation but in god in in what Christ has done, it's not just salvation for human beings, not just salvation for souls, but for the whole person. Very strong emphasis on resurrection and eternal life forever with God. But then a recognition, too, is as Christ says it at the end of the, of the book of Revelation, I am making all things new. Yeah. And, you know, that's even beyond our imagination. It's going to be better than whatever was offered in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Which it's so funny you say that because it uh, stands in the face of what I was taught growing up, which was this kind of escapist theology of, you know, don't don't worry about the world; it's all going to burn one day, and then we're going to go float around and sing and just kind of you know be these Casper the Friendly Ghosts for millions of years. But it's like no, this is this is a restoration of everything that's been broken. Like this is a return; it's an Eden restored, right? Right. It's interesting that one of the leading clergymen. Uh, in the Orthodox tradition is the Patriarch of Constantinople, okay. uh, the, the former Byzantium, now known as Istanbul, but it was the center of the, uh, the Orthodox, uh, Eastern Orthodox Empire, the Byzantine Empire. Uh, this uh, current Bar- um, Patriarch, Bartholomew, has the nickname the Green Patriarch because he's written so often and so frequently huh. about the importance of climate care, uh, taking care of the world, taking care of the species that are in it, and avoiding uh, avoiding the kind of the, the kind of actions that that uh, uh, challenge and tear apart the earth rather than restore it and preserve it. Wow, I've never heard the Green Patriarch. I'm gonna have to try to get him on the show. I I, I need to read <laughs> some of his readings because you know living in the Pacific Northwest, I, I never really cared that much for creation care until I got into this culture where it's so valued. And, and in fact, I would argue almost more valued by people outside of the church as a priority than people in the church because. I think there's various reasons for that that we don't have time to get into, but over the last seven to ten years, it's really become something that is important to me. And um, so, Green Patriarch, I'm going to look into him. <laughs> yeah, Bartholomew the First, Patriarch of Constantinople. Yeah, yeah, you'll find him. Something that you talk about in the book that I've never given any attention to, and so you presented it as new information to me, is a concept of deification. And in fact, there was a line that you quoted that was really helpful to me that said, deification is the fulfillment of creation, not just the retrification of the fall. And I'm wondering if you give a little bit of like a 101 course on deification uh, for people like me who have a very infant understanding of it or for people who may have not heard of it before. Deification means technically, if you break the Latin word down, being made God or being made divine. It's sometimes called divinization. Um, A Greek word for it is theosis that is so frequently used that sometimes it's used without translation. Hmm. Deification uh, goes back to uh, the Garden of Eden perspective. Remember that we were, you know, according to orthodoxy, that we were made in the image of God to attain God's likeness. And deification then is the attaining of God's likeness through uh, God's mercy and grace in Jesus Christ and uh, his his work within us as we walk in his ways. Now, what what that amounts to is this. Um, the, The term itself, deification, doesn't appear in the New Testament in its Greek terms either. But that's that's true for the term Trinity for millennium. A lot of the terminology we use isn't as such in the New Testament. Sure. The question is, is what it's taught is what it points to taught in the scriptures. 
And what ended up happening was as the church spread into the Roman Empire outside of Israel and, and, um, and, and throughout the Roman Empire in the Greek speaking areas, uh, which is the area where Eastern Orthodoxy historically has its roots, uh, in the Greek speaking and Syriac speaking areas, the way of talking about an ultimate future in, in the pre-Christian times, what they call Hellenized uh, society, yeah. was to talk about being absorbed into or accepted into becoming one with the ultimate, whatever that ultimate was, whether you called it God or a spirit or a being or the fullness. But the idea was that you would, you would get merged with, uh, absorbed back into God. And so that was the term that was used, theosis or terms related to it uh, for, 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 this, for this process. In order to communicate the gospel clearly, what the, what the early church ended up doing was taking that term and giving it new meaning, uh, knocking off its rough edges and pouring Christian content into it, just as, we, just as later on would be done with, uh, with words like God in English or in the Norse languages, which always referred to the pagan gods and refer to the one true God. Sure. But that term God or, or, or Gott in German, uh, whatever the language was into which the scriptures came, they used the term for God, for example, uh, and gave Christian content to it, getting rid of the pagan backgrounds. Hmm. In the early church, when this happened, what they did is they took this concept of deification, uh, of being accepted into God, and said, all right, this is the fulfillment of what we were supposed to be according to Genesis 1, in his image, after his likeness. Right. But what that, what that will mean is not that we are absorbed back into God like a drop into an ocean, but rather that we'll retain our, our distinctness, we'll be creatures, we'll never become the creator, hmm. but we'll become like God in holiness and godliness and righteousness and, and love for him and for others, um, that we, we will... Um, receive eternal life as which is something only God himself has that will be resplendent with the light that Christ had on Mount Tabor on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so that we'll become indeed like God. Deification is simply from an Orthodox perspective, the fulfillment of what God intended at creation now accomplished uh, by mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. You know, that makes a lot of sense. And it also ties into your comments about how our original created purpose is to attain God's likeness. And you say that the path of salvation uh, must both fight against whatever within or outside us would draw us away from that path, but also seek an increase in fidelity towards God. And I just, I love the the beauty of that, the way that you wrote that. Uh, but I assume this is a lot more difficult than it sounds in a cordial conversation. So I'm wondering, what is it, what is the path that we tread forward towards in attaining God's likeness? What does that look like? First of it involves, of course, being received into his presence and being counted as one of his children. So the Orthodox make a, a strong case for the significance of baptism, that in baptism, God places his name on us. And from mm. the early church onwards, from the apostles onwards, the, the joy of having the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit put on us at baptism uh, is deep and profound, so that whether we talk about being adopted, as the Apostle Paul does a couple of times, a few yep. times in the New Testament, or being born again, we're received into the family of God uh, as brothers, brothers and sisters to Christ. Hmm. Um, we're marked then by the Holy Spirit in a special uh, part of ceremony they have called chrismation, in which we are sealed with the Spirit, the promise of the Spirit, with oil made in the form of the cross uh, on the various parts of our body. Um, and then uh, with that, we also receive the Lord's Supper uh, as, as a means of communing in Christ. Now, 
I should say in this regard, as, as over against a lot of what is taught commonly in much of American evangelicalism, um, the Orthodox have a very rich sense that grace is communicated in the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. Yeah. Uh, it's not just thought about. It's not just memorialized. But from an Orthodox perspective, God says this is what he does in baptism. This is what he does in the Lord's Supper. It's not our part to argue about it. It's our part to believe it and to move on and to live in its light. Hmm. So for them, the reception of baptism is a joy. The, the privilege of receiving the Lord's Supper is, is, is also a joy. And then with that, we're called to walk in paths of faithfulness. So that includes prayer. That includes self-discipline, trying to turn from sin, confessing our sin when we, when we recognize that we've, we've fallen into it and we, we turned away from God, joining regularly with God's people and, and worshiping him, uh, coming into his presence, which is highlighted in so many ways in an Orthodox uh, church's worship service and the surroundings, um, living together with uh, it, choosing for him, you know, in, in when we face opportunities and temptations and challenges, yeah. um, engaging in prayer, self-discipline. Self-discipline would include fasting on special times of the year, especially uh, as not because these things that we pass on meat and dairy products or whatever else uh, it would be are, are evil things. They're certainly not, but recognizing all oh, that. The Son of God gave up in, in, to come to be our Savior as he emptied himself in the words of Philippians 2. We give up these yeah. things in order to draw near to him as we recognize just how much we long for meat or cheese or milk or whatever it may be. But so yeah. fasting is one of the ways of drawing near, obviously prayers as well, and simply living in a church. Uh, th this almost becomes humorous, but, you know, it, uh, as as some per, somebody once said, you know, the, the joy of being a Christian is that God makes you his child. The challenge is you don't get to pick your siblings. Um, so sometimes in church we end up with people, you know, not only the ones we get along with well, but the ones who, yeah, are a little bit more difficult to get along with. Well, learning to love our neighbor begins at home and begins in the church uh, wow. and learning to accept each other. And one of the things that I found fascinating as somebody who's not Orthodox but has studied Orthodoxy, one of the things I found fascinating is that every year in the Sunday before their, their Lenten practices begin, building up to the suffering and death and resurrection of Christ, the sure. Sunday before that is called Forgiveness Sunday. And at Forgiveness Sunday, at the end of the service, uh, service of the liturgy, uh, the priest ends, uh, the, the people gather in a circle and they come by the priest and ask for, for his forgiveness for whatever, you know, whatever they have, they want to acknowledge. And he says, God forgives. But then he asks forgiveness of them. Huh. But then the circle moves. It moves inside each other. And every member ends up asking every other member for forgiveness. And the person responds, God forgives. And then that person asks forgiveness as well. Wow. So that, yeah, this could just become a, a formal practice. But the idea is that we all fail each other. We all need that forgiveness within which in which alone we can live and wish alone God can give. That is beautiful, Jim. I've, I've literally never heard of that practice before. Yeah, I only learned about it a few years ago through a friend who uh, told me about it because I hadn't, yeah, as I said, I'm not Orthodox myself. Is the role of a priest in Eastern Orthodoxy a lot different than how like a Western view of Christianity would view a pastor? It, it, it's different in certain regards. Okay. Um, then, you know, if we were thinking of, let's say, an evangelical or a Protestant church, uh, certainly clergy are expected to, to wear distinctive clothing uh, to be available for a variety of functions and so on. Sure. 
they preach, uh, their sermons are typically not as long uh, as might be the case in evangelical circles. Let's say they were 10, 15 minutes, but they, they can be longer. It doesn't, there's no rule of thumb for that. But then a typical Orthodox worship service runs a good hour and a quarter uh, apart from the message uh, that the priest might bring. And it's stipulated, it's stated. Again, you hear God is the lover of humankind uh, a dozen times in the, the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. And so they, what, the, what the priest does is they pay careful attention to the, the structures of the church here to help guide their people through uh, these various events uh, and various uh, services and so on. Unlike in, let's say, the Roman Catholic tradition, priests in, the, in Orthodoxy are typically married. Huh. And so they, they function with their families in, in the church. Uh, so that's a difference there. Yeah. Um, priests, uh, even though they are priests, cannot forgive themselves. Uh, cannot forgive, you know, in their name, but they, they, when somebody confesses to them, God forgives, you know, so it's even their ordination doesn't, you know, grant them some kind of ability in that regard to speak for God, except to make his promises. If I was to show up at an Eastern Orthodox church on Sunday, is that something that like I'd be welcomed into or would it, would I be so out of place? Yeah, I, I know something about it from some, from, from some friends who've, who've made that transition. Um, certainly if, if, if you go to an Orthodox service, um, a couple things will be surprising. Number one is, for the most part, Orthodox stand for the entire worship service. Oh, wow. Most, most of them don't have pews or chairs, but uh, sometimes in North America, that's become the pattern to have it. But uh, you'll also notice that people sometimes walk around in the service itself. Hmm. Uh, and so, you'll, so people may notice uh, people who are uh, visitors. Um, those who've been going to an Orthodox service know for a long time what's what's going on, or at least the patterns and practices are typical. And so, if you're not Orthodox, uh, it'll uh, you know so, people may recognize that and come over and, and walk talk with you about it, or indicate, well, this is what we're doing now, or this is what they're practicing now. Oh wow! Uh, the the priest himself may end up uh, recognizing you and end up talking with you after the service okay. uh, just to find out your interest. I drive by one often and I'm like, I would love to go in there, but would I be so out of place? Well, let me just add one thing. that um, Since often enough Orthodox churches, not all of them, but some of them are, let's say, Greek Orthodox or Ukrainian Orthodox or Romanian Orthodox, it may be that people from that particular culture and heritage will be there especially. And you could end up with, as one of my friends did, somebody who said, what are you doing here? You don't look Greek, <laughs> which is not exactly the way to welcome someone to church. But that's, typically, that's not what I've experienced. The first time I went to an Orthodox church service uh, was everybody was gracious um, and and uh, helped help me try to figure things out and welcome me there. And, and that's that's been the experience I've always had. And when I taught classes in Orthodoxy and took students uh, from from my Protestant college, from my Protestant university, to the class, we were always warmly welcomed. So uh, oh, I'd be surprised if anything short of that happened for you. Okay, one last question, and I know that this could delve into a five-hour conversation, so I'm going to let you take the lead on where you want to go with it. But the key question on the back of the book that I thought was so good was, how can Christians claim that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is a victory? And so I'm wondering, obviously your book is about the victory of the cross, Specifically, when it comes to the death of Christ, how can an Eastern perspective better inform our Western mindset? And maybe what would you urge Westerners to maybe start considering that they've never considered before? A few things in that regard. Um, 
One is what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians, um, I think it's chapter 1, then 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, about Christ triumphing over the enemies on the cross. Hmm. Uh, that's typically not the way we end up speaking uh, in the West. And yet the Apostle Paul says it very forthrightly. He talks about the cross being the power of God and the weakness of God being stronger than men. Hmm. And it, there, it's a challenging perspective because that's not the way typically we in the West approach. Usually in the West, we end up thinking of, of Christ as a victim. He goes to the cross to suffer and bear the punishment for our sins so that uh, as we trust in him, we can be forgiven. Uh, but it's it's our uh, our sins and guilt that has to be borne. And so God pours out the wrath of the divine wrath on him and he bears it and endures it and and gives up his life for us. Hmm. From an orthodox perspective, certainly sin has to be dealt with. But when the satisfaction is given, the satisfaction from orthodoxy perspective is not to God's justice, but to God's truth. Wow. So that God said in the day that we eat of it, you shall die in order for salvation to be possible. Death has to be born because God is true. So in his love for humankind, God himself in his son takes on that death in order to carry it away in order so that salvation can be granted to God, to God's people, to all who come to him so that on the cross, Christ is there as, the victor. Now, that's not what it looks like. But then, as Paul says, the weakness of God is stronger than men, and the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Yeah. And what, what he's getting at there, and in other passages as well uh, in the New Testament, uh, the emphasis is on, on Christ's victory on the cross. That he, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O, where o sting, death is your sting? Um, it's been carried away by Christ himself, and uh, he's endured it. And, and and its power is broken for us. Westerners kind of have honed in on for the last uh, five, six hundred years. I would, I mean, I think Reformation on is really zoning in on this penal substitutionary atonement theory of, of the crucifixion, which is that Christ died as a substitute for sinners, uh, and the guilt of our sins were put on Christ, and he bore the punishment that we deserved as a full payment for sins, mm -hmm. and that out of that, God was satisfied this is a bit of a different approach to that, wouldn't it be? Yes, it is, because you, may, you have this hard transition from, well, this has to be done so that God's, God's judgment can be satisfied so that God can love us. Yeah. Um, and, and from an Orthodox perspective, it's the reason Christ dies is because he loves us so much that he wants to get rid of death and defeat yeah. sin and the devil uh, and take them away as our enemies so that he crushes the head of the serpent while the serpent bruises his heel. And so it's it's it is a different approach. It's it's not that God is not holy. Of course he's holy in Orthodox either, but God's wrath is directed against sin. Well he loves us. Again, I'm not a scholar in theology, um, but the the concept of Jesus having to die so that God can finally not be angry just I could never fully understand it, but the way you're describing it now is as Christ is victor to eliminate death. That is a that is a good news gospel. It, it certainly comes across that way, and I've it's been interesting to me. I, as again, as I said, I taught the history of Eastern Europe, and periodically I read about uh, people who you know, church leaders who'd survived the communist period, sometimes in, in prison or whatever else, but who'd never really had 
exposure uh, to Western teaching and being startled at the notion that God, God was tied up with his wrath and with his rights uh, rather than loving. And they, they, were, they were puzzled by what was going on in Western Christian teaching because it, didn't, it certainly didn't fit with what they'd grown up with and, and what, what orthodoxy ends up teaching. Again, it ties back to what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation and that sometimes uh, we just become so familiar with, um, with an ideology that we blatantly begin to provide arguments for that, whatever that belief system is, even if it doesn't totally make sense, and we can't unsee that. And so uh, for me, this book was really helpful in, um, in Garden of Eden stuff, in creation, in the victory of the cross, which is, uh, uh, I've, I say this, I feel like almost every episode on the show, but uh, there's a teacher out of Missouri named Brian Zond who describes the Western view of what happened on the cross as more of a judge and jury sort of situation, whereas in the Eastern church, there's more of a, we're sick and we need a doctor and less of a we're awful and we need a judge sort of mentality. In a prior book I wrote on this, which we're not talking about today, but called Light from the Christian East, an introduction to the Orthodox tradition, I I lay out how the gospel ended up moving into the two halves of the Roman Empire, the Roman side, the Western side, and the Eastern, you know, the Eastern part. And it, it's indeed true that, you know, the great contribution of Rome uh, to Western civilization was its emphasis on law. Hmm. But you know what ends up what ends up happening is that when you know after the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West, it continued in the East in that Byzantine Empire, the Orthodox Empire. Yep. But but when when uh, Christian civilization civilization develops in the West, it's still framed and and built on a legal structure for the most part, hmm. understanding God as a judge and and law has to be answered to. Yep. And so then you have. Anselm of Canterbury in in uh, late in the uh, the you know before 1100, um, writing about why God became human and says that well in order for us to be saved in order for us to be for, to be forgiven God's justice has to be satisfied. Yep. It fit in very well with the feudal conception of law at the time that the master uh, if if a peasant ended up uh, doing something against the master. It was the master's rights that had been violated, so the peasant had to make it up, and hmm. there was no way he could do it, and certainly no way we could make it up to God. So that uh, from Anselm's perspective, the reason God became human in Jesus Christ was that as God, he could bear the judgment none of us could, but as human, we had to pay for it. Wow. Um, and that kind of gave a rationale for the way in which some Western Christians have been teaching for a while anyway, and that kind of anticipates the coming of the Re- of the Reformation and the development of, as you said, penal substitutionary atonement yeah. by about 500 years. Uh, interesting thing is, though, that emphasis from Anselm, you can hardly find it anywhere in the church until his time. Hmm. Whereas this, East, you know, and, that, and that's just, that's a, a challenge. Yeah. Because the, the emphasis on Christ as the, the victor of the cross, the one who bore the, the consequences of of uh, our sin, namely death, uh, that's found virtually from the beginning. Yeah. And some of the early church leaders, like Vincent of Laurent, uh, said that what has been believed everywhere, always, and by all is is the, are the essentials of the Christian faith. Huh. Uh, really, that particular Anselmian uh, satisfaction and penal substitutionary atonement approach has not been believed everywhere, always, and by all. So it's not essential to the faith, even though we in the West kind of Take it as essential. It's become so familiar because even 500 years ago, which is 
a quarter of Christianity's progression since the life of Christ to where we're at today, it's familiar because it's what our grandparents and our great-great-grandparents and our great-great-great-great-grandparents believed, but it's still a young ideology in the light of Christian history since the time of Christ. It, it really is, yeah. Your knowledge has been so helpful in uncracking some of the, the things that I've believed and helping to kind of reshift and reform and cause me to ask even some different questions on things that I've just blindly accepted for years. And so uh, super grateful for you. And thank you for, for making the time to sit in and have this conversation with me. And I'd love to have you on again in the future. Thanks so much for being with me. And thank you, Heath. It's been a privilege and uh, I've enjoyed interacting with you on it. Sure. Be glad to do it again. All right. So that was our episode for today. We hope it was beneficial to you. Um, I just want to let you know, too, if you want to book me, I'm actually doing a new tour uh, called Our Playful Universe, and it's a 60-minute talk where I talk about the playfulness of the universe by suggesting that we're not here simply to exist, but that we're here to play, to enjoy the process, and that if we uh, if we miss that, we've missed our purpose of ever existing. And so um, I'm doing it. It's about a 60-minute show. I'm just starting a book for 2020, so if you're interested in having me come and perform that in your area, feel free to reach out, and we can make that happen. I would love to do that. All right, that's it for this week. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heath in Pursuit podcast. We look forward to being back with you next week. For more information on the various works of Heath Hollandsby, please visit heathinpursuit.com. Thank you.